Okay, welcome to the Marathon Running Podcast. Today's episode is mostly about shoes and the new technology out there, helping people run faster and causing controversy. My guest today is an exercise scientist and has done research with these shoes, but just to give some context in case you're not familiar with the situation, a few years ago, Nike came out with a road racing shoe they claimed boosted performance by 4%. It was actually called the Nike Vaporfly 4%. And this was actually measured in the lab. The 4% improvement was the actual statistical finding from the original experiment. But it's important to understand that the 4% does not mean running 4% faster. The 4% is referring to the difference in metabolic cost, which is measured by the amount of oxygen consumed while using the shoes. So they're saying running in the shoe, you use 4% less energy, basically. Now, when you go to translate that into how much faster you run as a result, that will vary based on a lot of factors, but roughly it will translate to about a 1% improvement in speed over a given distance, which is still a big deal. So the original study had the subjects run at various speeds in two different control shoes, which were the Nike Streak and the Adidas Boost, which were two of the top road racing shoes at the time. They would run in these shoes at various paces while hooked up to lab equipment measuring oxygen consumption and everything. Then they did the exact same thing running in the Nike Vaporfly prototype. And on average, the subjects showed a 4% reduction in oxygen consumption using the Vaporflies. That study was done by Dr. Roger Cram at University of Colorado Boulder. And that's where the 4% name came from. My guest today is Dr. Ian Hunter from Brigham Young University. He's an exercise science professor, and after the original study from Colorado was done, his group basically replicated the study to confirm the results. They were actually asked to do this because Dr. Cram at Colorado happened to be a Nike consultant, and they wanted another independent study done of the shoes so there wouldn't be any criticism of bias in the study. So Dr. Hunter's group at BYU did the same study and basically got the same results, except they were showing a little closer to 3% than 4%, but it was still a very significant improvement from the control shoes, which were already state-of-the-art. Now, of course, almost every major running shoe manufacturer has their own version of this now, which is the thicker, bouncier foam combined with a carbon fiber plate inside. And Dr. Hunter explains more about how these shoes work and why it is they allow you to run faster and answer some questions. But we also talk about training. So to rewind a little bit, Dr. Hunter ran the 800 meters at BYU as an undergraduate. He went on to grad school at Oregon State. He continued running and started focusing on the marathon. In 2009, he won the St. George Marathon in Utah, and he has set age group records there four different times. He works with USA Track and Field as their biomechanist for distance running in the steeplechase. And he's been part of the Team USA staff for three World Track and Field Championships. With that, here is my interview with Dr. Ian Hunter. All right, I've got Dr. Ian Hunter here from BYU. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Appreciate you having me. Okay, let's jump right in here. I heard you on the Run to the Top podcast a few months ago. And... You were talking about the original Nike Vaporfly 4% study that you were involved in. And you said that you replicated an original study because the original study was, um, they were having trouble publishing it 
because somebody working on it happened to be a Nike consultant and there was potential conflict of interest concerns. And so you kind of did it sort of to verify the results. Is that right? Yeah, initially, uh, Roger Crum was the one that was there working as a Nike consultant, and he, he called me and asked me about replicating it. Between, between the time he asked me and when we actually completed our study, he did work it out and, and got his published also. So there were, in the end, there two studies saying somewhere around 3 or 4% benefit, so the, the shoes were working. Right, and the scientific evidence that's been put out and the anecdotal evidence combined with that, there seems to be really no dispute that the new technology out there is enhancing performance, and um, which is pretty amazing. So I actually watched uh, Dr. Krem's, one of his presentations on this research, and he basically gave three properties of shoes that lead to a better running economy. So that was mass or weight of the shoe, the cushioning, and the stiffness or flexibility. Um, so I'd like to break each one of those apart individually and ask you a couple of follow-up questions on um, kind of how this works. Uh, so the first part of that is the weight of the shoe. And obviously these new shoes coming out, whether it's the Vaporfly or, you know, pretty much every brand has their own version of right. this now. They're very lightweight relative to how big they look. Um, they're relatively lightweight. And obviously the lighter, the better. That that cat that factor seems pretty straightforward. I mean, is there anything other than just the lighter the better? Yeah, there definitely is. The the mass of a shoe it seems to be around one percent increase in metabolic cost, meaning more energy to run for every hundred of grams that you add to your feet. And the vapor flies are a little bit lighter, in some cases a little bit heavier than the more traditional shoes, but not by a whole lot. So the the mass part of it with the new shoes, the Vaporfly or whatever company you go with, is only a very small component and in some cases actually a detriment to performance. So the, the mass, we can say, it, while it's very important in footwear, it's not why the Vaporfly is so effective. In what scenario would... Uh smaller mass or, or lighter weight be detrimental? Oh, not smaller. Um, so less mass is definitely a good thing. Or maybe a better way to say this is the mass that's there in the shoe needs to be useful to the performance. So the Vaporfly is even a little heavier than some shoes that were traditional marathon shoes. But uh, the mass that is there is mainly in that thick foam, which uh, is very responsive and effective. So the, the mass they're adding to the feet is having some really good benefits to the performance. Right. Okay. So that leads us to number two, which is the, the cushioning. And from what I understand, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole added benefit we're getting with these shoes is that the foam has more compression to it and also returns back more of the energy that's put into it. So it, it's basically a bouncier, more spring-like shoe than other foams. Is that basically the advantage we're getting? Yeah, it is. The The shoe does return energy close to, I think the PBAX foam for the Vaporfly is somewhere around 90% given back as what's put in it. But if it was, a, you could have a very, very stiff shoe that doesn't compress far, but has 90% energy return. But if it doesn't squash far enough, it's not pushing back at the right time, and it's not giving enough, uh, well, it's not giving enough energy back at the right time, and you're really not storing what you need. Um, effectively. So what we really need is a lot of compression. That's why the thickness of the shoe is so great. But it's easy to compress 
but it also pushes it back at the right moment in time as you're coming off the ground. So do you know technically what it is about this foam that allows it to compress more because it's a lower density foam and yet it's also more resilient? That seems kind of paradoxical. What Do you know what kind of property it has that allows for that? I'm not a chemical engineer to get into right. a good answer on that, but foam is basically trapping pockets of air, very tiny ones in this case, and they've found a way to design it that there's very low density, so a lot of it is air, um, and it's captured effectively, so it can compress a long way and rebound, uh, it, giving back most of the energy that gets stored in it. But it, it's something with the uh, chemical engineering design process that's made right. it effective. So you mentioned that the thicker the foam is, the more it can compress. The 40 millimeter rule, because um, when these started coming out, there was a lot of debate about, you know, where do we draw the line with these different parameters, like the thickness, the plate, and all these things. Why, how do you think 40 millimeters, how do you think they arrived at that specific number? And secondly, why do you think there even needs, do you think there even should be a line drawn at all? Uh, the first question, I, I obviously wasn't in those meetings to hear, but <laughs> the vapor fly was right around 40 millimeters, right? And I'm, I'm expecting part of the discussions were not necessarily whether it's Nike or not, but there's a shoe out there that we're worried about whether it is fair for competition. And they decided, let's make whatever's currently out there right now legal. And then they don't have to go spend millions or I don't, I don't understand business money very well. Maybe it's billions, <laughs> but I'm sure at least millions redesigning a shoe that they just uh, started producing. So I would guess that the world athletics in those meetings settled on, let's go with the current technologies and cap them in terms of thickness, not let them to go any greater on it. Um, I, I'm not convinced that a thicker shoe would actually be better. So I don't, I don't know if the rule capping it at 40 is really relevant. It, it's the type of foam. If you go much thicker, if you've run in these shoes around a sharp turn, they start collapsing into themselves. And you, you need the carbon fiber plate to kind of keep its integrity a bit. And I, I think it's the type of foam more than the quantity. Um, but within that uh, small amount of foam, well, relatively speaking, small, um, we've got an entire body six feet tall or whatever on top of this. So we can see that as a relatively small thickness protecting the foot, giving some energy back that the person stored in the shoe themselves, they're not gaining energy from this. So I'm, I'm not so worried about the improvements there. They've, they've happened in all sports across the decades with things like if we stay with running, track surfaces are a whole lot better than they used to be, and they'll keep developing those. Uh, if you look at tennis, we've gone from wooden rackets and different string types through aluminum rackets and beyond. Um, we want to innovate and keep things exciting. So it, we'll never have a good, clear way to compare say, highly Geber Selassie to Lasse Viren, or we could go further back and so on. Um, and that's not the point. It's who am I competing against today? So for me, I worry less about what the rules are for the footwear. Whatever the, the rule book says, let's stick with that and see who can do best with it on the day. You mentioned that the higher the shoe is, the you need that carbon plate to maintain some stability there seems to be a misconception that the carbon plate is what's providing all this energy return but you're saying it's really the foam is what's providing the energy return and the carbon plate may have something to do with that but it's more 
there for just to maintain the integrity of the construction, basically? I think it has two purposes that we've somewhat figured out now. One is that it, it does hold that foam together so it's not uh, too unstable as you're landing, putting two, three, even more times body weight all on that foam in a direction it may not prefer. So it, it does kind of keep things together. It does add stiffness, and we've finished a project in our lab where we looked at different stiffnesses of carbon fiber plate uh, in a, a Saucony Freedom shoe. That's just a very foamy, soft shoe, not super thick. But we wanted to know with a very neutral shoe what happens when we add stiffness so the foot cannot bend as far. And we found pretty much the middle. It was three or four layers of carbon fiber that dropped metabolic cost on average, but it was only a little little less, I think, than 1% improvement in this metabolic cost, meaning energy cost of running. So the carbon fiber plate alone doesn't seem to do a whole lot. What it does change mechanically with the foot not bending the same, it brings the center of pressure of the ground pushing on the foot more forwards as you're near the end of the step of running. So it, it's changing what we call the mechanical advantage around the foot and ankle, and perhaps even hip and knee. That's a little harder to measure accurately though. So we have a different lever system, at least around the ankle and the uh, metatarsal joint, right where the toes begin. Uh, and that I think is more where the benefit comes in terms of performance but it still doesn't explain the three or 4% that other studies have been finding. So we assume the foam and energy return is the main thing. The plate does not work as a spring in a beneficial way. It's not angled or positioned in a way to give energy back that we store in it at the right point in time. It's just trying to keep the, the foot flat instead of allowing it to bend. So I wanna ask you, uh, basically the same question about the foam and the plate, which is for all of their respective advantages, do you think, and we can start with the foam, you know, we have the higher compression, the more energy return. Obviously this is improving certain outputs and performance. Are there any possible negative consequences you could imagine to that that maybe haven't been studied yet or really considered that could be a trade-off we're making there with the foam? Um, I think they're pretty close to a good combination right now. There'll always be ways to improve things. One, one factor that uh, wasn't brought up when you mentioned about Dr. Crum, um, one other innovation that there's still room for is the shape. Um, that still can be messed with, and I'm guessing different plate and uh, modifications to the thickness of foam at different parts of the shoe are where we'll continue to see some progression here. But the, uh, the plate, I don't see as anything in terms of a drawback with the combination of plate and foam, if that's what you're getting at. I just mean separately on their own. You know, you have the foam uh, energy return advantage and then you have, like you said, this smaller, lesser significant advantage with the, the stiffness of the plate. But each of those things on their own, do either of those pose any mechanical risk to injury or anything like along those lines? Um, perhaps. So, yeah, I would, oh, let's see. It's hard to put it in a rank order here. But I, I believe that any especially overuse injury is probably what you're more focused on here. Every overuse injury comes from what I categorize as a training mistake. And that could be volume intensity, but it could be starting on a different surface or transitioning to a different surface or uphill, downhill before the body's adapted to it, or a different shape or stiffness, pressure points inside the foot. Our body is amazing at adapting to the different loads we put on it, but it needs time to adapt. So if we're changing how the foot is positioned and where the pressure on the foot is, whether it's more or less pressure, uh, if it's less pressure, you wouldn't expect injury. 
But typically, if you're putting less pressure in one place, you're probably adding some pressure somewhere else. If we land running on a softer surface, our hip and knee actually get greater activation to try to push off the ground because it's not getting that same energy return. So we're changing something in how forces are placed on the body by adding a carbon fiber plate, by changing the foam, the thickness of it, the type of foam. So there is some risk with injury whenever a, a transition is made. Specifically with the plate and even without a plate, just anything that's adding stiffness to a shoe. You know, you got the whole like born to run, the minimalist movement, the kind of natural barefoot, let's let our foot do what it naturally wants to do concept, which I buy into that. I guess my question is the argument that side seems to me making is um, the more minimalist, the more natural movement a shoe is allowing, not necessarily going to boost performance, but it's uh, it's the least likely to cause injury. And there's a study by um, Darren's definition um, that looked at this some years ago about you know how much stiffness is optimal for performance and. And it, it was generally along the lines of what you just mentioned, where they found a, a, a specific stiffness that did reduce energy consumption by about 1%, but then after that, it was kind of diminishing returns. So, um, so I guess you have two questions here, like what's best for what's best for injury prevention and then what's best for performance. Do you think those two things are necessarily in conflict when you add stiffness to a shoe? I think they might be, actually. I, I don't think you can get one shoe that's best for performance and best for minimizing injury risk. I like to uh, present on running mechanics and footwear with a slide that shows the Hoka uh, Bondi with, and then a transitioning all the way through to a barefoot runner, and we've got road racing shoes and track spikes and something like a Nike Pegasus and so on mixed in. Um, my advice to people that ask me about footwear is what's the purpose of the run that you're going on? And I think all of those categories of shoes or lack of shoe has a good purpose. The barefoot is not best for performance. We've, we've seen that in uh, plenty of, of research showing running economy and so on. Uh, but it puts a very high load on the foot, bones and the muscles in the foot, you can get some foot strengthening and your foot can become more resilient to injury by doing some barefoot or at least minimalist shoe running. The Hoka came out years ago and I thought, well, this is just a, a joke. What are they trying to do? And uh, thought this is so ridiculous. You're going to sprain so many ankles or break them. And I thought it was just silly that they came out with a shoe so thick. And then I was in a running store picking out a minimalist shoe for a study we were doing and asked the guy, hey, I keep telling people not to get these, but I haven't even worn them. So let me try a pair. And they have a little miniature track in their store. And I took one step of running and thought, oh, I'd, I'd like a pair of these Hoka's <laughs> and realized the morning run, say, after a hard long, high volume, fairly high intensity workout uh, the afternoon prior, this would be the perfect shoe. You can absorb a lot of that shock and stress even running on the pavement and have a good recovery day morning run where you're getting the work you don't need to, but you're taking the stress off of these damaged, beat up lower legs and feet. So I saw a good purpose for that. Uh, if we want to race well on the road, I think this new style of, I'll, I'll just call it road racing shoe. We know they work for at least 3K through marathon. So this new style of shoe, I think, is best for road performance. The track spikes are going through a little transition, but that's the best choice of shoe for racing fast on a track. So each shoe has its purpose. If it's building strength of the foot and body to prevent injury, then I think barefoot and minimalist is going to be good. If you're putting in so many miles that you're, and your body's not prepared for that with barefoot, then I think those more traditional, like the Nike Pegasus or Saucony Freedom, those kind of just neutral shoes, 
are going to be good just for getting a lot of miles done. And then racing depends what the race is. Sure. So it sounds like a stiff shoe has the potential to pose a little injury risk. But on the other hand, if you're doing some foot strengthening work, maybe in minimalist or barefoot, minimalist shoes or barefoot, you may be able to kind of go back and forth and and kind of uh, hedge some of that risk. Yeah. Well, and if the stiff shoe is going to have some kind of injury risk added with it, but you do enough running in it over time, your body's going to become resilient. And then if you switch back, you might end up Mm. with an issue. So I like the idea of let's do a variety of footwear, variety of surfaces that match with your training purposes. And that's where you get all the different loads on the body in different ways and your tissues generally stay strong. But if it's specific, race-specific training that you're doing on a certain day, then I'd say train in the shoe you're going to race in. What about another factor, and regardless of type of shoe or cushioning or anything, the heel-to-toe drop, Wait, is there an optimal amount of drop for performance across different distances that we know of? We've tried to investigate that. Um, one of my grad students did a, a project where he looked at zero drop through, um, it was either 11 or 12 uh, millimeter drop shoe and barefoot. And the differences, at least in the running mechanics, we didn't do energy cost in this case, but in running mechanics, we couldn't really find anything going on other than the 12 millimeter drop to barefoot even the zero millimeter drop, we weren't really seeing any running mechanics differences going on. The interesting thing is if you think about a 12 millimeter drop, you've got a, what, let's say 10 inch foot. 12 millimeters is very small. And if you're compressing a lot of that foam under the heel, maybe even a 12 millimeter is close to a zero millimeter drop. (laughs) Uh, And maybe a zero millimeter in natural practice of a heel striker, it might be a negative drop, mm. and at least for position of where the foot ends up. So I think we talk about the drop of a shoe, and it does matter, because even a small thing, if you're doing 20,000 repetitions of it, can make a difference. But I think more gets talked about with the drop of the shoe than is really necessary. I think it is more the comfort of the shoe, the shape it puts your foot in, if it feels more natural and comfortable to the person, whether you're a heel striker, a midfoot striker, inverter, everter. Um, there's other factors that I think are much more important, I guess, is the right of that. That's a good point, because when you just think about the number of the drops compared to other drops, like 1 versus 12 sounds like an exponential difference, but the way you put it, compared to the size of your foot, relatively, that's insignificant. And the interesting thing on the drop of a shoe, it took a lot of talking to different people that I thought would know. They don't actually change the, it's not a percent drop by length of the shoe. So someone with a size six uh, foot in the angle of the foot has a much bigger drop than someone with a size 12. I, I don't know why the companies don't do wow. angle of drop instead. Right. Yeah. And so I found out at least from a couple of companies, um, no, we just do heel to toe drop by millimeters, no matter what the foot length is. That's pretty crazy. Cause you, I mean, yeah, the angle could be like, I don't know what the math off the top of my head. It sounds like the angle could be close to double depending on, the size of the shoe. I don't know. If we're trying to do some geometry here. Sizes, yeah. <laughs> Talking about injuries, and this is kind of a shift into, this could be a combination of footwear and training um, in one question, but in your experience, do most injuries come from a, an acute trauma during like a specific session where you've done something too hard for too long versus a long, kind of like the textbook overuse injury definition where you've just done too much of it over a long period of time. And I know that's obviously it could be a combination of the two and that's probably a oversimplistic question, but 
do you see anything in your own experience that in along those lines that seems to carry a higher risk of injury? This would be, I, I haven't read any uh, research dealing with that specific question. So this is more just my own observation. Sure, exactly. Yep. A few decades now. So I've seen a lot, but I might have some bias in my thinking because uh, I've been doing this for so long. But most of the time when we see things like stress fractures, I feel like that is more the long-term kind of building up over time. Uh, it might be one workout that is the final trigger, but the bones were probably in a modified state even before that one mistake or one day of training mistake. Uh, when it's more like uh, a tendonitis, then I feel like it's you did a workout that your body wasn't ready for or a race and the muscle got so tweaked and sore it's tugging on the tendon and you but you're going to keep training because that's what we do so it, we could probably pinpoint it to that workout was the start of the event but tendonitis i don't think comes from one day of running uh, but it's taking a, a workout that gets you in a weakened state and then you continue working on it and you end up with long-term problem and that would include shin splints same kind of category of, of inflammation there. So I, it's not going to probably be one session that causes an overuse injury, but it's the, the sessions around it also. And some are probably just gradually built up over even a month of training till you actually realize that was too much. Random question also about uh, kind of mechanics and potential uh, imbalances and that kind of thing. Um, I've always heard that whenever you notice your uh, like one of your feet kind of clicking against the inside of your opposite calf when you're running, like if after you've been on a trail, you notice you have mud on the inside of your calf and it's where your you know, legs, feet have been rubbing, that that's um, indicates some kind of weakness or imbalance in your hips. Is there anything? I'm just personally, I, I experience that a lot. Is there anything to that? Um. I feel like most of the time when we see those, let's not add not just the ones that hit their calf, you see some that kick their feet out to the sides as they swing the leg through. Anytime some of that's going on, I feel it's most likely either something to do with the shape of their skeleton, and we're not going to change that, so maybe that's just the way they're going to move, or else, well we could force ourselves to not do those positions if we were very conscious on how we moved every step. But the body wants to move a certain way because it feels more economical to us. And for some, that leg clip hits out, some it goes in. Um, I feel like there would be some times where it could be some kind of muscle weakness or imbalance, uh, not just shape of the skeleton every time as an answer. So maybe we focus on some strengthening of, say, gluteus medius muscles or muscles that work on rotation, um, if I say longitudinally. Uh, it's harder to do this in just voice rather than with diagram. Right. But like the spin of an ice skater, so the internal and external rotation of the hip would obviously lead to the feet swinging through, not just in a neutral, straightforward way. So the muscles that work on internal and external rotation at the hip, if they're weak, then maybe the body isn't wanting to engage those so effectively. But I don't think that's always going to be the answer. There's plenty of yeah. really, really good runners that have those oddities. Um, just from thinking of the own, my own people I've known, Kyle Perry was one of our runners here at BYU that won the national championship in the steeplechase. And his right foot would always swing out kind of goofy on the every single step of running. But if it did slow him down, I'd like to see what he could have done. <laughs> but I think for him, it wasn't muscle weaknesses because the trainers and strength coaches and everything, they'd worked on that throughout his time here. And it didn't change it. So sometimes I think it's just an anatomical oddity that just is going to linger no matter what you do to try to change it. Yeah, something I've heard you say, you know, a lot of times we see these 
kind of maybe unusual movements or something, and our instinct is to want to correct it to make it into this standardized, you know, what we, you know, optimal quote optimal running form or whatever. And you made a good point, which I'd never really thought of, is you know, if if the body is doing something we see and think is unusual, there's probably a reason for it that we're just not even aware of, but the body is aware of it. You know, it may be trying to correct some internal imbalance or, and maybe you shouldn't mess up with it. Maybe, maybe actually the default decision should be to not change anything unless there's, you know, a real problem. That's what I always go to is let's not change anything unless we figure out why it is different in the way it was. We had another runner here, Josh Rotinski. He won nationals in the 10K or in the cross country. His sister actually won the 10K on the track too. But uh, Josh had a lot of hip trouble uh, right on the femoral neck, if you know where that is. And after all of the traditional therapies and trying to work things out, we had him in the lab one day just for a study, and I was putting reflective markers on the um, couple locations on the pelvis. And then there's a measurement that we do that goes down from the pelvis to what we call the greater trochanter, which is that bump on the side of your the top of your femur. And I noticed as I stood there holding my fingers on left and right side, one side was shifted really odd. And later that year, he actually got an x-ray to check for a stress fracture because he was still having these troubles. And we could see the, um, the bowl that the femur goes into in the pelvis has then the neck of the femur, and then it drops down vertically. The neck of the femur on one side was angled normally. The other side, it was almost horizontal. And that was the side that was getting more stress and, or more pain. So the learning from that was, well, we're not going to do surgery and change his body shape, but there's going to be higher forces on this side because of the way everything's aligned. So instead of building up to 90 miles a week over uh, two months, starting at whatever start point we say, he needs to start a bit earlier and make it a three-month build up to the mileage that he wants to get to and just get the tissue stronger as mm-hmm. that develops. So there's a lot of anecdotal stories. If you look at Haile Gebre Selassie um, and his backpack carrying and so on on the way to school, and and you learn about things that might be a muscle imbalance caused by years of doing something some way. Other times, it's not that. Um, It's embarrassing as Bill Rogers. His name slipped my mind for a bit. He had one leg a little longer than the other, and it caused some upper body oddities. And they try to fix it, but it shouldn't be fixed in that case. So find the cause and then work on should we change this or just modify training to help avoid injury. Right. Um, so I was scrolling through some of your uh, the papers you've produced, and um, one or two of them had to do with the the difference or comparing sprinters versus distance running, distance runners mechanics. Um, can you speak a little bit about what, what that research was all about? Yeah, we were mostly interested in how sprinters move differently than distance runners. And they, they have different purposes, right? The distance runner is focused on economy of movement. They do want a high speed, but they would need to do it with a low energy cost. The sprinters, they don't care how many calories they burn during a 100-meter dash. They just want maximum speed and power. And it seems that really needs to be trained. It's not typically just a natural position that people use. Our bodies like to do things using less energy. If you think of carrying bags of groceries from a store or something, we find positions that seem to be less stress on our body. And I, I believe in distance running, that's how it works. But sprinting, there are certain positions that need to be trained. And something we found interesting as we went through three categories of runners, we had sprinters that were defined as 400 meter and less. And then we had 800 or more than 400 up through 3,000 meter and then 3,000 meter and longer. And we found the sprinters and the distance runners move differently when running at the same speeds. 
the middle distance runners, we didn't find any difference between them and how the sprinters moved, but they were also different than the distance runners. So from that one, it was kind of an interesting result. The middle distance runner seems to be someone that moves a little more like a sprinter, but has some of the capacities of a distance runner in terms of the physiology and uh, the ability to utilize oxygen effectively and so on. So middle distance runners are kind of a unique group there. Some might have better aerobic capacities than a distance runner, but they move more like sprinters. So they have a good top speed, but they move a little less on efficiency and more towards sprint-like uh, using power and can't maintain those positions for a, a 10K as well as their distance running counterpart might. Wow, that's really surprising. I totally, just in my mind, lump 800 up to the marathon basically in the same category. It's all aerobic, you know, that's what you hear. Right. But uh, what, what is the most significant difference in movement to, to make those middle distance more of power focused versus efficiency? Most of them dealt with positions of the hip and knee uh, more than the ankle. Uh, the, if you think of sprinting, we need to get a lot of flexion of the knee as we swing the leg forward. Uh, if you remember back to your high school physics days, you learned about something called angular inertia. If you have mass really close to where it's spinning around, you can do it very quickly and with less effort. The sprinter tightens into a, a lot of knee flexion to swing the leg forward, not just using a little less energy to do it, it's more focused on the speed of getting it up quickly so the knee can get up a little higher. So the sprinters have greater hip flexion. They're bringing the knee up uh, further from the ground. That allows them to swing it down using their glutes especially to put a whole lot of force into the ground. By, by getting that knee up high, mm. they're able to do a lot more work to the leg to bring it down with a whole lot of energy. And that hits the ground hard, gets them off the ground quickly, increases the stride length. And uh, that, that was mainly where we saw the differences. They um, tucked in tighter at the knee, swung the knee up a little bit higher. And I think they did also have a little bit higher peak force into the ground typically, even when going the same speed as the distance runners. This ties really well into a specific question I have for you, which is the relationship between max speed and longer distance running efficiency. So I think aerobic endurance is kind of the foundation everybody agrees for like marathon performance you have to have great aerobic capacity um, but if you're looking to improve on your overall marathon time at some point the mechanical aspect of running faster does come into play even if it's not to the degree we're talking about like with a sprinter um, so like let's take a 211 marathoner who wants to try to run 209 so you're going from five-minute pace to 4.55 per mile. So obviously running a 4.55 mile is not a problem for him. He could probably run an all-out mile in like almost four flat. And he could probably run even under 4.50 pace for a half marathon. So it's not that he doesn't have the speed to run 209. He just needs the endurance to hold that speed for longer. So anyways, if you're trying to make that jump, uh, I'm sure there's a lot, ton of aerobic development that's involved. Um, at the same time, you know, most people would probably agree that if that person could improve their half marathon time, then that would probably have good implications for their potential marathon performance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you think about the shorter distances improving in those when you want to get better at the marathon. So I guess my question is if you follow that logic, you say, well, I want to improve my half marathon time because that would help my marathon. Well, that means, well, if you want to improve your half marathon time, you should probably improve your 10K time. If you want to improve your 10K time, probably better at the 5K all the way down to where you're talking about working at your max speed. So I guess the question is, you know, you, you have the pyramid concept where, you know, a big aerobic base kind of dictates your ability to race well. Um, do you think there's some kind of reverse pyramid where like your max speed has some kind of limiting factor up the chain to longer distances? 
there's going to be interactions in all of that. One type of training is not going to do everything that you need to sure. get through a marathon. And one of the things that a lot of um, marathon uh, athletes do not realize, uh, this partly depends on who their coach is and what ability and what their goals have been, but a lot don't realize the amount of strength training that goes into a, an elite athlete that's well coached. Uh, they'll end up spending a lot of time in the weight room. Well, a lot is relative. Uh, they'll be spending often somewhere around 30 minutes twice a week in the weight room doing very specific strength training where it's focused on the muscles that they need to avoid getting fatigued and the weights are relatively high for what their max capacities are. They are also doing a lot of plyometric drills through the week. That's not doing much with aerobic fitness, but if you can get your muscles strong, meaning the parts that contract and activate along with the structural components of the muscle. You know, muscle is not just something that shortens and helps you move your body. There's structure to it too that's not part of the contraction. And it gets damaged and weak and fatigued. So whatever we can do with plyometrics, especially eccentric loading, and then a couple times a week with some strength training, we're getting the muscles so that their max capacity for speed and strength is increased. That makes them more resilient to injury. So there's plenty of studies that show improved running economy, meaning you can run using less energy if strength training is added as a, as a supplement. Um, there's pretty limited for now, but there are also studies showing um, the muscle breakdown throughout a marathon is smaller if it's someone that spent that time strengthening the muscles. Uh, so you know, I don't know your stats well enough, but I'm guessing you could be running with that uh, five flat marathoner somewhere at, at some point in a race, but and, and it's not putting you over the edge aerobically. But to do that for 26 miles, it's the muscles that just, it, you have a different body once you've loaded it through that many repetitions of that kind of effort. So you end up being limited by muscle damage, uh, perhaps some dehydration. There's a lot of factors that go into why you're tired at the end of a marathon, but a lot of it is just the muscle damage that's occurred. And you can minimize that through the long aerobic training of the long runs that you do, but also by getting them stronger through strength training and plyometric drills. Right. So like you said, there's no like one, there's no one specific training. That's the whole answer. It's a combination of yeah. many things. We've had um, talks on the components of training for the marathon and what's most important. And mostly we've settled on the long run is the most important part of the training and we then we go back and forth on is it then just weekly mileage or is it mileage at race pace <laughs> you need all three of these things and then let's add in the strength training also to do your best marathon so it's hard to rank order them and say if you cut one which would you cut but they all matter um, and if you really want optimal performance, then strength training, I think, does need to be one of those components. And I don't think anybody would dispute that any one of those training activities are bad. I think it comes down to, like you said, prioritizing what you're doing. Because you can't be an Olympic weightlifter and an Olympic marathoner. You, I mean, you can, you can do all of these activities at different ratios, but you can't maximize all of them. So at some point you are prioritizing, say, the long run over some strength training. I mean, at some point you do have to, you know, prioritize one over the other. But, um, and I think even acknowledging that, I think um, it's still hard to grasp maybe the importance of the strength training and the 
like the explosive work, it seems counterintuitive. Like, well, that's not what I'm doing during a race. Like that's a completely different movement, completely different. It's kind of like, um, well, if I'm trying to do a maximum number of push-ups, why would I do the bench press? Like they, they don't seem to feel the same. Like why would, it seems hard to connect the two activities. Well, imagine it this way. We want to run a marathon at, in three hours. So you do a lot of training at three-hour pace. You'll get really good at running three-hour pace. But what happens when there's a hill, uphill and downhill, or a surge with the pack? Do you want to stay with them or not? Um, if you haven't got tissues that are strong enough to handle something other than exactly what you've been doing, there's nowhere to improve. So if we add these other supplements that put us over the edge from our typical training load on strength or endurance or speed of movement, then we're allowing us to find improvement in the future. Otherwise, we'll just keep getting the same results that we've always had. Right. And I'll, I'll put this last question to you here that's it's kind of in the same vein of what we're talking about here, and we'll wrap up. Um, like you have a goal, say like, oh, I want to run a, a, a 210 marathon or a 209 uh, and you can think of average pace like, oh, that's, you know, 455 pace. So I need to be run able to run 455s all day. But it could just so happen that you run a 209 and actually no single mile was 455. You may have had a 435 in there and like a bunch of 501s. You know, this kind of goes back to um, working on higher end speed and how important it really is for distance runners because – and this comes up a lot when you look at um, championship racing on the track. You know, you'll see the the last lap of uh, Olympic final and the 10,000 be like 55 seconds. I feel like you can draw different conclusions from that. You say, well, anybody can run a 55-second lap, um, but the ability, the aerobic ability to not be tired at the end and then be able to do it is what's important. So you have to, you need the strength. And then on the other hand, you could say, well, if you're going to close a 10,000 in 55 seconds, you better be able to run like a 48 second all out in training. You could take that in different directions and focus on like, I really want to be able to close fast. So I'm going to focus on my 400 meter speed, or I'm really going to focus on the aerobic side so I can close fast when I'm tired. Um, and then it's not to say you have to choose, like, obviously, like I said before, you can work on all these things together, but it's just a question of proportions. Like, when does a distance runner know that they're fast enough to close kick at the end of a race or make a move in the middle of the race? You know what I mean? Yeah. They know it at the end of the race. <laughs> they, um, specificity of training is maybe the best thing to consider with that uh, thought process. Um, we're not going to be able to close. Um, uh, let's say we're going with, a miler. Uh, we're not going to be able to close that last lap in 52 seconds if we can't run a 52. Uh, but you got to do that, like you said, after doing uh, almost three laps of uh, 1500, I guess is what I'm thinking here, um, where that uh, 60 flat pace doesn't really fatigue you. <laughs> So if you're training for a championship race, there's got to be some of that very high intensity, subs, I'd say sub 50 pace, um, a lot of 200s where you're running uh, some in you know, around 24s and so on, be able to get the turnover that's needed. But there's got to be the endurance and often runners call this strength. I always think that's a strange term to use, but the strength runner that can do the do 1200 meters at a solid pace, but it, they're not fatigued and they can still pick it up at that point. Um, you remember, you might not remember, I don't know. I'm sure you've seen this clip, but the end of the 10K in the, I think it was the 2000 Olympics with Haile and Paul Tergat, and Haile yes. closes with a 27, last 200. Um, with a pretty crazy pace for miles going into that. 
Um, I'm sure he did a lot of 24, 25 second, 200s, or at least that pace of some distance in the training. But um, he also had the capacities built up with his VO2 max and the how fast he can run when he's at his VO2 max. He did a lot of things to build up his aerobic capacities so that he's able to use that specific training he did with the, the sprint at the end. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Hunter, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I never really asked you about uh, your background and stuff. I'm going to have to go back and record a little intro. Actually, that reminds me, I did have one other thing I was curious about. Can you um, maybe just briefly kind of talk about what the work you do with USATF? Yeah. Yeah, I had a coach here at BYU, um, not my coach, he was actually the women's coach, but when I started studying biomechanics, he let me know that USATF was looking for someone to work in biomechanics with the uh, shot putters and women's hammer throw. And I hadn't had much experience, but I thought if they want me, I'll learn things and I'd love to be involved with them. So I... uh, called the person he said to and said, I'd love to do some work with women's hammer throw. Hammer throw just sounded really interesting and fun to study as a biomechanist. Uh, And I did that for a few years. I had a grad student that did a lot of the work with me and uh, Susie Coons, she's now at Marshall University. She's, I've passed the hammer throw over to her and I've taken over with mainly steeplechase. I guess I'm on the books there as the distance running uh, biomechanist, but most of them don't care about reaching out to someone like me. They've got their own coach and their own people um, that, you know, uh, I won't say names of coaches in this example, but there are certain coaches that you could probably guess of they're not going to reach out to someone else for biomechanics help, but for the steeplechase, hurdling, water jump, there's a lot there that's still open to learn. And we do clinics with a lot of the uh, top U.S. steeplechasers where we'll have nutrition, physiology, training, biomechanics, strength and conditioning, and so on, uh, psychology. And so I get involved in a lot of those and then typically go to all the U.S. champs or Olympic trials and Peyton Jordan, some other big meets where I just do my filming and my students here do a lot of measurements and I send reports out to these athletes so they can look it over with their coach. I'll often give my suggestions for improvement, but it gives them all the data compared to the other people in the subject pool. And they can also make a lot of their own decisions when they they look at that focus. So that's mainly it now is working with the steeple chasers, uh, measuring, giving feedback. And that's been a really exciting thing in the U.S. for the last 10 or so or more years. Well, very cool. Um, We'll go ahead and wrap up. But uh, again, um, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Okay, no problem. Happy to do it. All right, and that was my interview with Dr. Ian Hunter. I thought one of the more interesting points he made was how the new rule made by World Athletics about the height of the shoe or the thickness of the foam is kind of irrelevant because like he said after a certain height it's really more of a detriment than a benefit i mean you're just going to lose your balance you're less stable um and it's more the type of foam which there's no rule about and it kind of made me wonder if there were no studies done about these shoes and there wasn't such a big hype around the rollout Um, I wonder if it would have even been a controversy at all or if there would have even been the need or the perceived need to make rules around this because nobody's really made much of a fuss about any of the developments up to this point. Like you said, you know, the track surfaces. What about all the other developments in the foam up until now? I mean, before the Vaporfly, the shoes we had you know, say in like 2015 compared to the shoes in 1980, you know. And especially now that 
every other manufacturer has kind of caught up, there's really not much of a unfair advantage from one brand to the next. Personally, I've never worn any of these shoes. I've always raced in just traditional racing flats. I'm doing Grandma's Marathon in June, and and for me, I don't know if I want to change anything. If you go back to episode one with Jeff Milliman, we talk about the kind of risk-reward decision or, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of this. And and uh, his thinking seemed to be the jury is still out on the whole injury risk aspect of the tall shoes with the stiff plate. Um, and I, I'm aware that everybody is wearing these, okay? Um, and I don't dispute that you can run faster, potentially, um, for a 1% improvement in your time. Do we know exactly what we're risking for that reward? I don't know. Um, my feeling right now is I'm not against trying them at some point, but I, I don't want to get injured. I definitely care about performance, but I really just want to be consistent in training, and I don't know if I want to make a major change in shoes. And it's not like I'm competing for an Olympic spot and trying to take every 1% incremental improvement I can get. Um, realistically, I've I've never trained for a marathon before. Um, I think I'm going to be able to run somewhere in the... 240 range if everything goes well sometime this spring i might do an episode on the training that i've kind of come up with for myself and how it's going and give an update on my progress but anyways thank you for listening and keep an eye out for the next episode